Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. This week, we're sharing our live show from Seattle, and sadly, Clint couldn't make it because he was home with his family, including his newborn baby. But Brittany, Sam, and I had a great show, and we talked about the Overlook News as we do every week, and we're joined by Seattle's Mayor, Jenny Durkin. Before we get started, I want to respectfully acknowledge that we recorded the show on the ancestral homelands of the Duwamish people. Let's go. How y'all doing, Seattle? You having a good night? We are so, so thrilled to be here. I'm Brittany Packnett, at Miss Packetti on all social media. Thank you. Uh, I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Samsway on Twitter. With the new hoodie. <laughs> With the fresh <laughs> kick. <laughs> and I'm Dre at Dre, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. <laughs> if Clint were here, he would ask all of you to help us settle an argument. It's really important. Which... Girl Scout cookie is the best. Here's why we've been talking about this a lot. Look, I don't eat chocolate. Yes, we exist. I don't like chocolate. I don't need it. I never have. Which means that I was always stuck with those whack shortbread cookies, <laughs> the trefoils. And I, it just like turned me off permanently. So now I hear that there are lemon bars, but I'm too scared to try again because the trefoils just turned me off permanently. But, but in the group chat, everybody's like, which Girl Scout cookie is the best? And they're like, Samoa's and all the other chocolate ones that I don't eat. So yes, we need to settle this right here and right now here in Seattle. Okay. So I love the Samoa's, first of all. What's it? I got a it Google. Seems crowd I got a popular demand crowd that favorite. is a popular opinion. Uh, Which one? What described the Samoa? What's a, I Googled and I don't see Samoa. You don't see it? <laughs> I really am like, what's a Samoa? It's like, like we don't believe you. You need more people. Like, I don't know if it's caramel. It's got all these stuff in there. Caramel, I hear. Okay. Car- yes. Uh, but uh, Caramel, okay. caramel. But I got a question. Else? Is it the thing with, the, it's like the circle with the stripes? The, the internet calls that caramel something. It don't call it. Uh, <laughs> That's because you know the caramel. Did they change the name? But that where did the name come from? Caramel delight. Because it sounds like okay. yeah, we're like is that a little racist? I don't know what's going. Is, it, is it racist? Like where know. does this come from? I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know. And if they change the name, that's, that's a good why, indication. Listen, Girl, Scout, Girl Scouts is a really strong organization. Girl Scouts 2.0 were like, we're going to do away with the potentially problematic names. Yeah. Caramel, caramel Delight. Caramel I like delight. those too. I didn't know what you was talking about earlier. They changed it that long ago? Okay, I don't, well, what's, what's your favorite? Are you a, are you a Sinmate guy? I'm uh, Googling, but Caramel Delights, I really like. I also like the shortbread. Thin Mints, great. Okay. Big fan okay. of Thin Mints. I feel like this picture is a little outdated. These weren't the cookies I had a long time ago. I don't know what these cookies are. It's like it's a conspiracy. They changed the cookies. I don't eat peanut butter, though, and I've always hated the peanut butter ones because everybody buys them, and it's really peanut buttery, and I only like peanut butter with jelly. There are two peanut butter cookies. (laughs) Ma'am, what are they? Do-si-do's. And tagalongs, never to be confused. <laughs> on Google, the first couple images don't have these names. Um, okay, so moving on, I have a question. Another question for you all. It's not Girl Scout cookies, so you do not have to punch the person sitting next to you. Question: How many of you all have about five hundred thousand dollars lying around to get your kid into college? <laughs> Nobody. Because Aunt Becky did. <laughs> Aunt Becky sure did. Listen, okay, so you all all know the news, right? I'm Becky, Lori, what's her name, Lori Laughlin? 
Felicity Huffman and her husband, William H. Macy, a whole host of other people, including um, somebody who is a, um, a, a venture philanthropist and who supposedly has been giving his money to disadvantaged communities just to, you know, take advantage of uh, the college admissions process uh, and being a capitalist. Um, those folks, a lot of them conspired uh, to get their children into college, even though um, their said children were not actually qualified uh, and used a whole bunch of different mechanisms to make it happen. We found out that there were um, certain applicants whose race was changed uh, to take advantage of affirmative action policies. Um, but what was particularly disturbing to me, uh, and let's think about how much, how many kids could have been sent to college who earned their way to college for $6 million. I mean, come on, right? That's an entire scholarship fund. Um, but beyond that, we also have to be clear about what this is going to do to young people with disabilities, because this particular scam required that people took advantage of accommodations that are made for disabled young people when taking the SAT and other standardized tests. So this is my piece of news today. A little bit of context. There are 1.3 million young people in America with disabilities. There are about 160,000 of those students with disabilities who in the 2015-2016 school year requested accommodations for the SAT alone, right? So we're not even talking about other standardized tests, the ACT, SAT2, AP tests, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and those accommodations can look any kind of way. You can have the test read read aloud to you. You might need a magnifying glass or something to help you visually. Um, you might need to move around and get up while you're taking the test. But most importantly, what, what a lot of those accommodations look like is that you actually get more time on the test, right? So there are some uh, young people with disabilities that get as much as an extra day. And these are the kind of accommodations that we know that, that these families and others took advantage of um, and, and exploited. And here's the real problem with that. Every time able-bodied people take advantage of systems that are created to benefit and level the playing field for disabled people. It's not us, it's disabled people who suffer. Uh, and it's their accommodations that get taken away. And it's more restrictions that get put on what they have to do. And Teen Vogue wrote a really great piece and quoted two of my friends, Valissa Thompson and Rebecca Coakley, who if you're not following, you should be. They do amazing work in the disability community. But it's the, it's the young people who are disabled themselves who get the most punished um, because we are doing those kind of things. So every time we decide as able-bodied people, we, I'm using that broadly, every time I decide to park in a disabled parking spot, for example. Um, it's not just that I am potentially blocking that spot from someone who needs to use it during the time that I'm in the store. It's also the fact that states will sometimes respond and put more restrictions on who can get the tag necessary to park in that spot. And again, so disabled people suffer when we make the small choices and the large choices. Uh, you know, and I say that knowing full well that when you add intersectional identities to this, it becomes even more difficult. I'm really, really, really pissed off at these folks, not just because they have always been able to take advantage of affirmative action and not just because we've got, you know, black young people and brown young people and indigenous young people walking around colleges that they earn their way into feeling like imposters while Aunt Becky's daughter gets to buy her way in. And not just because we actually know that black and brown parents are jailed when they try to get their child a better education by using different addresses. I'm pissed off about all of that. But I'm definitely pissed off about what this can do to some of, sometimes the most invisible students, and those are disabled children. Yeah, so um, just to respond to your news, Brittany, yeah. I mean, 
compounding the difficulty for students with disabilities to get access to the supports that they need yeah. um, is the over-criminalization of students with disabilities in the education system. Um, and of course, intersectionally, uh, that criminalization falls disproportionately on black and brown students. Uh, and so according to the U.S. Department of Education, uh, 12% of uh, the student population from K through 12 are, are students with disabilities. Uh, and 28% of those referred to law enforcement and arrested at school are students with disabilities. Yep. So there is a huge disproportion uh, in terms of the level of criminalization uh, for these students. And to think that now compounding all of that, uh, there may be threats to the access that you do have if you're able uh, to not get sent down this school to prison pipeline, uh, the access that you have to the accommodations you need uh, to get to uh, college in the first place. And yeah. so, you know, it's really, it's really sad. And I hope that we can I hope that this scandal doesn't lead to uh, those types of effects. And I do hope that it leads to another kind of effect, um, which is accountability and which is equity in education, uh, because we need to end legacy admissions, first of all. Uh, Absolutely. It is wild to me that we still have legacy admissions. Uh, and, by, and the fact that we have legacy admissions and they're not even really reporting data on it. Right, so, so we really don't even know a lot of questions about legacy and the data that does get reported doesn't look very good. Mm. So only one school has reported the demographics of who these legacy students are, and that is Harvard. They did it for one year, which is uh, about three years ago. 93% <laughs> of those students were white. So this is quite literally affirmative action for white students, um, and that's legal. Right. right. Not counting the illegal stuff that's happening on top of all of that. So, you know, we have to get serious and crack down on that so that we can create a more equitable education system for all. Amen. And what was really wild, another part that was wild about the scandal was that they were photoshopping themselves into pictures of athletes like you're like that is really y'all were dying Shoot to get the it. J. right they're like i don't know if you saw chrissy teigen on twitter she like photoshopped her and john legend in these uh, football players faces <laughs> you're like i love it she's like does this work uh, what i didn't know until the scandal and i was doing some research is that where the word meritocracy came from do you know where the word meritocracy came from no it came from this guy in 1958 he wrote uh, a piece called The Rise of Meritocracy, and he actually wrote it as satire. So he wrote oh, a story. Yes, 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 he wrote yes. a story about a society in which um, social class got, got essentially like upended by people who could take tests, and all the people that could take tests were the people who like rose into power. And in the end of the story, those people actually reinforce the same sort of social stratification that class did, and it leads to a revolt. And like meritocracy is like, that is where the word actually comes from. So he, uh, in 2001, he wrote this piece in Atlantic and he's like, don't think a lot of people read my original story. <laughs> I wrote this story to be a warning and they didn't pay attention. But like he had all, the person who made the word up knew that it was, that like the thought that we were building a society just based on accomplishments wasn't real. That like there's always uh, the interplay of power and privilege in the way that power is decided in society. And I thought that was really interesting. And when I think about like what this is a reminder of is that for so many people, uh, the idea of the American dream or the reality of the American dream is actually rooted in a scam. That like there are all these rich white people who like they got into the best school and da da da. They like worked hard and it's like, you actually didn't work hard for that, right? Like somebody actually gave you those things. And how do we start to be honest about that? I hope that this moment isn't just like for fodder about the scandal, but helps us think like larger about like what does merit look like? What do tests actually do and what don't they do? What yeah. does it, how should we be letting people in the school? How should 
we'd be rewarding like excellence and what that looks like K-12 and in college. And like, I hope that this moment actually does that for people. Yeah, absolutely. So my news is about Stockton, California. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, yes. (laughs) Um, So Stockton under Mayor Michael Tubbs, they yes. like Michael Tubbs. Shout out for Tubbs. Yes, Michael Tubbs is dope. Um, has pioneered a universal basic income program. This is the first in the nation. You know, we talk about universal basic income as sort of this idea or this theory or this thing that was implemented mm-hmm. in like uh, Scandinavia. Um, it's actually happening here, not far, not too far from here. So the way that this program is structured, uh, they have randomly selected 100 people. Uh, in low-income neighborhoods in Stockton. Uh, those 100 people are sort of the, um, the first uh, demonstration of this to then scale over time. Those 100 people will receive their second distribution of $500 debit cards that come once a month in the mail for 18 months. So a total of $9,000 they'll receive over this 18-month period. Uh, and I wanted to talk about this because uh, universal basic income is not, not only actually happening, not only being researched as a strategy to then be scaled over time, um, but it is also an example of when we elect uh, forward-thinking, young, and people who are, people who are committed to actually ad- yeah. fundamentally doing new things, different things, to address uh, issues of inequity, economic inequity, uh, racial inequity, because when you think about the demographics of who lives in communities of concentrated poverty in Stockton, um, those are communities that are disproportionately black and brown. Um, so, yeah, so I wanted to, to hear your perspectives on this because uh, it's dope. I'm looking forward to seeing how it progresses, and um, I hope more uh, people take this up across the country. Yeah, I think it's incredibly powerful. I mean, Tubbs is a friend of all of us, a friend of the pod, um, and he's only 28 years old, which I just think, yeah, clap for that. He's 28 years old. So like, I'm 34. I've been like, what have I been they doing went to college with my together. life? Yeah, but, side note, Tubbs, yeah. Tubbs and I took a class uh, in sophomore year on uh, hip-hop, the politics of hip-hop. <laughs> and we did a group project together, and it was, like, the dopest project I've ever done. I mean, clearly. So, yes. like, so, yeah. If you do yeah. say so So yourself. I'm totally biased right. bringing this up, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> and, where, and where was this class? What school was this? This was at Stanford. Oh, okay. Did you pay? Or you did didn't you, pay. You, no, you no, took the test. No, you got I, it. I didn't okay. pay $500,000 to get in. <laughs> Just making sure. <laughs> But I, you know, a young woman came up to us after our our Portland show. She and her friend, they were just really frustrated by how many people are telling them that they are too young to make a difference. And I'm like, I'm really glad that John Lewis did not listen to people telling him he was too young. I'm glad Diane Nash didn't pay any attention. Like, I'm glad that all of the young people throughout history that have changed the face of this country did not listen to the naysayers. And I'm glad that Michael Tubbs didn't listen to people when they were like, you are too too young to run for mayor of your hometown. He's a 28-year-old mayor completely changing the game for the entire country and setting a model of what's possible. Um, And I think, you know, I I used to be, um, I used to work on Capitol Hill. And when I left Capitol Hill, I was an an advocate. Um, And it was interesting because I worked with folks in Republican offices and in Democratic offices. And what I found very clearly is that there's very little that they agree on. But whenever you can tell Republicans that we're not spending any new money, or you can tell Democrats that we're spending the money on the folks who most need it, you can get agreement on the same thing. And this is precisely what this is doing, right? So one of the things that Mayor Tubbs talks about is that this is not new money that we're spending. These, these are the kinds of funds that we already spend as taxpayers 
when someone um, who doesn't have a basic income or a living wage goes to an emergency room, right? Or they, they avail themselves of public services. So if we are redirecting that money in a way that actually puts them in a position of agency and power over what's happening in their lives, what is possible with that? How strong can a city, can a community, can a country become if we actually dare to respect people and their dignity and believe that they can make good decisions for their lives? I think it's great. You know, we talk a lot about the wealth gap and the median wealth for black people is projected to be zero dollars by 2053, the lowest uh, projected wealth, median wealth for black people post-slavery, which is wild. And the question becomes, what do you do about it? And we talk a lot about this notion that like when we think about direct transfer, like actually giving people things, we did that for white people for a long time. But for black people and poor people, we're like, we don't know what to do. We couldn't possibly do that. And it's like, we actually gave white people wealth. We gave white people homes. We gave white people free education or they scammed their way in. But like, <laughs> when you think about poor people and people of color, it's like we actually can employ those same strategies and universal basic income is this idea of like directly giving people things. I'm obsessed with D.C. So in D.C., uh, they went to full day pre-K in 2009. Obsessed with this. Uh, full day pre-K is great. And what four-day pre-K did in, in 2009 in D.C. was not only did it lead to educational benefits, which is what people planned, but it also led to the highest maternal employment in the country and in the history of D.C. at one time. Mm. Amazing. And when we think about, like, what to do to close the wealth gap, some of the solutions are really different. They're not the things that people think about. People weren't thinking about full-day pre-K as, like, a wealth-building strategy. But why does it build wealth? Because now you don't have to pick up your kid at noon. Because who gets off work at noon for half-day pre-K? Nobody, right? So now, like, <laughs> women can participate in the workforce in ways that men can. And, like, Fancy that, that. Yeah, you're like, that actually makes sense, you know? Um, and we also, we also talk about this notion that sometimes the best policy runs straight up against racism. So we got to make sure that we are working on structural issues and we're changing values and beliefs at the same time. Rajan, have you heard of Ban the Box before? So Ban the Box uh, was a set of laws that passed across the country that said that we couldn't ask if people have been convicted of a felony on the first step of the application process for employment. Ban the Box is good. Uh, what came out right after Ban the Box, though, was that, that black people started doing worse in the workplace after Ban the Box passed. And you're like, why are black people doing worse in the workplace? Why were black people doing worse in the workplace? We talked about it in the pod. This is a quiz. <laughs> people made assumptions. That they, so based on the name, right? Yep. If they saw a name that they thought was black, then they made the assumption that they could have been convicted. They of just assumed that all the black people were criminals yep. because they couldn't ask anymore. You're like, that's a problem. Uh, and it's a good example of like good policy running up straight up against racism. It's one of the reasons, too, why when we think about wealth, an investment just straight up in K-12 does a lot of really good things, does negligible things about uh, wealth. And that's because white high school dropouts have more wealth than black college graduates precisely because the positive impact of education is actually wiped out in terms of wealth because of racism. Mm -hmm. So we think about the structural things. It is like we have to do things like UBI. That is important. And we have to make sure that we work on the values and beliefs so that like one doesn't cancel out the other. And we know that debt reduction is huge. That like that is a big part of like why people aren't wealthy. And we know that a housing strategy, which is why Warren's bill could be so interesting because it also is a form of direct transfer. Like it is actually giving people money to help them buy houses. And that could be an incredible option. But we are always obsessed with this idea of like the unlikely solutions. And how do we help people think about the unlikely solutions? Because not to be Debbie Downer, but a lot of the things that we met, a lot of the areas that we measure outcomes in, the outcomes actually either aren't changing in ways that we like or getting worse. So we think about like the number of people killed by police in the country, 
It's actually either static or going up, depending on sort of where you look. Not good. Prison population, not necessarily going down. And what, uh, the reason that I say that is that I worry sometimes that people confuse the change in the conversation with the change in outcomes. And we never want to confuse the two. The fact that we are talking about the world differently doesn't mean that the world in and of itself is changing in the way that we want it to. We are talking about the trans community in ways that we've never talked about the trans community in public. Trans black women are still being killed every month. Yep. Like we have to be honest about those things. We're talking about police violence in ways that we've never talked about at scale like this. The police are still killing people in most of the places that we measure. So want to be laser focused about like the conversation changing is a big win, but we got to make sure that the outcomes actually change as well. So before you go to your knees, uh, by show of hands, how many people know about the Homestead Acts? Okay, all right. Uh, how many people know about 40 Acres and a Mule? I've heard this. Okay, okay, see, see. see they, they Peppermint really... patties for all of you. Yes. No, Tagalog. Wait, do I like tag- Tagalog? Was that peanut butter? Especially I don't like you. that. No, I don't like Tagalog. <laughs> Samoas or Caramel Delights. So when DeRay talks about that they gave white people homes, right? This is actually true, right? This is something... Did you think I was lying? Oh, I don't know. No, I'm playing, I'm playing. It was actually true. Uh, This is... Sam got all the receipts. So I want to talk about this because I know we're on the West Coast, so this is really relevant to Mm -hmm. the land that we're sitting on. Um, In the mid-1800s, the Homestead Acts were passed. There were multiple Homestead Acts. Uh, what that did was it allowed you, if you just submitted an application, just an application, you didn't have to, there was no means test, you didn't have to go through, jump through hoops, you didn't have to go through a training, none of that. If you submit an application, uh, you would be approved for uh, hundreds of acres, up to hundreds of acres of land in the Midwest or the West Coast. Now, this was land that was taken from Native Americans, first of all, and we should acknowledge that. Um, but a lot of the wealth that you see Uh, that exists today, that wealth gap that we talked about, that is directly related to what happened uh, in the mid-1800s. Because white people were literally given land, like a lot of land, acres of land. Um, And black people were excluded, um, in part because they were trapped in the South during that time period, as you know. Um, And that wealth was passed on down generations. So it happened here, it happened in states across the West Coast, Midwest. People built homes on that land. Those homes were then sold uh, or continued to appreciate in value and be passed down through families. Uh, and that wealth became a nest egg uh, that, could aff- that could pay for kids to go to college, that could pay for if you had a medical emergency, mm-hmm. uh, if you uh, needed to pay for uh, a car or something, some mob- having additional economic mobility to get to a job. Uh, all of that created opportunity for white people in a way that has never happened uh, for any other group. Uh, and that's why you see such a huge wealth gap. Then that was compounded uh, in the mid-20th uh, century by the FHA loans, which helped the next generation of white folks get homes even easier uh, through these easy loans. Uh, low-interest loans, uh, the GI Bill, which black people and and many folks were excluded from, which was free college uh, for folks coming back from the war. So all of that was given to folks, right? That is why we see these huge disparities today. And so when we talk about what needs to be done in terms of reparations, in terms of closing the wealth gap, like there is actually a model of how wealth was built for white folks, right? 
uh, and it was giving folks stuff. And so we have to be serious about like not imposing a different standard now uh, when it mm. comes to other groups because okay. you're still going to have this inequitable result in the end when folks are not able to jump through all those hoops uh, to build wealth in the way that wealth was built before. You know, if your mic wasn't attached to your head, I'd tell you to drop it. <laughs> Because all of a sudden, when, when black folks and indigenous folks start demanding what they're owed, it's like, we don't give away money around here. Right. They're, oh, they're like, where's the money going to come from? It's, where, where did it come from last time? You know, like, <laughs> take it from there. So I'm going to set Sam up for this, too. What percentage of crimes that happen in the country, what, what percentage of arrests that happen are for violent crime? 5%. Tell them, Sam. Yes. <laughs> so according to the FBI Uniform Crime Report, uh, of all arrests in this country are for violent offenses. Uh, Another 12% are for property crimes. So these are things like burglary and theft. Uh, And the vast majority of arrests are for low-level offenses, Uh, things like disorderly conduct, possession of marijuana. There are actually more arrests for possession of marijuana alone uh, than the total number of arrests for violent crimes combined. And that's even, that, that's recent data. Like that's after legalization happened in about half the country. Uh, So, Yeah, so that's what the police are doing with their resources, if you didn't know. Um, And this is why it's so important (laughs) when we talk about, you know, where to allocate resources that we're focusing on uh, investing in things that actually work, uh, that are expanding opportunity. And when we talk about policing, uh, we're being really clear that all that money they get in the city budget, about 40, 30, 40% of the city budget usually, um, that money, they don't really need 30, 40%. Uh, They could get, you know, whatever they they want for violent crime, their 5%. Uh, And we could do 95% into all these other things that actually matter. So I think, uh, you know, we need to to really rethink about where we're putting our investments as a society because currently they're being used to criminalize populations, black and brown communities in particular, and we need to stop. Yes. Give it to him, Sam. Now, um, now my news, I, I wanted to set that up. Sam, you know, I'm like, I love Sam. I'm like, Sam, please tell the people, tell the people, is that... When we don't understand the reality of what's happening in communities, we believe in a set of myths. And myths reinforce a reality that often also reinforces the status quo. And if you believe that violence is plaguing communities all over the place, then you will be more likely to believe a set of solutions because you think everything is violent. So my news today is about ICE. ICE today detains more people than it's ever detained, than any apparatus that has been like ICE has ever detained. ICE detains 50,000 people a day, which is wild. Uh, ICE actually doesn't own enough property to detain that many people a day. So how do they detain people? They actually rent out local prisons and jails. Also wild. But my news is because ICE is actually participating in a license plate reader program all across the country. Uh, More than 9,000 agents have access to the program and about 80 law enforcement agencies participate that cover about two thirds of the population. So most cities already have license plate readers. That's how like if you've ever seen a boot on somebody's car, it was not like somebody like walking around like manually looking up license plates. In most places, there's a license plate reader that does it. We've known license plate readers existed for a long time. What we never imagined was that somebody would nationalize all the data with license plate readers. And sometimes when I've said that to people before, they're like, well, you're being dramatic, license plate readers. It's like, well, no, here's what, it ha- here's what happens when it gets nationalized is that for the first time, uh, law enforcement can actually tell like, that your car was in Baltimore on Monday, 
was in Philadelphia on Tuesday, was in New York on Thursday. They can tell like what neighborhoods it was in. Like that is the effect of nationalizing the license plate data. And they're able to do it in a way that bypasses local oversight because when they participate in the database, like the local agencies actually have no clue when somebody's looking into it. And what's been interesting on the West Coast is that there are a lot of cities on the West Coast that actually are sanctuary cities. They've said they're not going to cooperate with ICE. But those same cities had unwittingly participated in this license plate reader program. So ICE can actually get the same information about uh, people that ICE is looking for, even though the city is a sanctuary city and completely bypass any city mechanism. So always interested in like, there's all these things that are operating that we just have no clue that are operating. And what happens when people believe these myths about crime or about communities that like allow cities, like city council people, police chiefs and mayors to even allow something like a nationalized license plate reader to happen. So I wanted to bring that as my news today. So, um, yeah, you should be horrified. So the, the, <laughs> the name of this company that is doing this is called Vigilant Solutions. And being the super sleuths that we are, I was just like, who is Vigilant Solutions and what exactly do they do? <laughs> so, um, DeRay, your news was, was specifically about um, ICE law enforcement agencies and ICE agents who have access to this. Yes. But more broadly, they've actually got 3,000 law enforcement agencies um, that, have, that are clients of theirs at Vigilant Solutions, right? So remember, this is a private company. Our tax dollars are being provided to police officers and law enforcement agencies for them to then contra- create contracts with Vigilant Solutions. Um, so there are 30,000 police officers who have nothing to do with ICE that have access to this nationalized data. There are 2.2 billion pictures of license plates taken by Vigilant Solutions alone by 2016. We don't even have the number for the last three years. 2.2 billion license plates, which means they probably got your license plate, to be clear. Um, They, and to DeRay's point, they don't need a warrant for that, right? So if the police wanted to put a GPS or a tracking system on your car, they'd have to go to a judge, they'd have to show cause, they'd have to get a warrant. This actually allows people, to your point, to actually track where the photos were taken, when they were taken, look at the timestamps, and don't actually have to get a warrant whatsoever. Vigilant Solutions collects $5.3 million in annual revenue, which comes from our tax dollars, a lot of it. Um, and who's making that money, i.e. who's on their board? An executive director at Morgan Stanley, the former Senate Sergeant at Arms, which sounds wild, right. um, and the former CEO of J. Crew. So... I could see that. That's so he was weird. like, from leopard sweatshirts... <laughs> to Vigilant Solutions. Um, Here's what was even more disturbing to me to find out was last November, Vigilant Solutions announced a partnership with Park Mobile, which is a company that allows you to pay for parking. Have you all used this? I know you all have this in Seattle. You pull up, you parallel park, you find the little number, you pay on your phone. You have no idea that you're participating in this thing. So so they announced this this partnership um, because now they're helping Park Mobile Park Mobile verify the license plate and and the payment information. Helping Park Mobile. Helping, right? So, and this was just this this last November. And if the news hadn't come out about ICE, I never would have gone and done this information. You wouldn't be sitting here wondering who got your license plate. These are things that are happening under the surface every single day, and they're being done in our name and with our money all the time. Like, if we are not asking critical questions at every single point, like, people can call me conspiracy theorists all day, but if they're taking pictures of 2.2 billion license plates, I have a reason to believe in the conspiracy. Yes. Mm. Girl. Yep. Ask the questions. Yep. So, first of all, the 
way in which technology and new technologies are being used needs to be dramatically curtailed. We need to have oversight. Uh, we need to make sure that there are policies in place so that cities can't just randomly adopt these things behind closed doors, even police chiefs without the city, city council's permission adopting these things behind closed doors, using them like in Baltimore. Um, I think we talked about this uh, a while back on the pod, how they were using an aerial surveillance system uh, that would be this small plane with this advanced camera that would fly around the city and be able to essentially take high-resolution pictures of everything around the city that was happening. Mm. So they could track where cars were going, they could track everything. Um, the other thing that's interesting is uh, this same company, Vigilant Solutions, they also use facial recognition technology. So you go to the website, it says, we license plate readers and facial recognition technology, um, which the intersection of those two is particularly scary. Um, the final thing that's interesting is, uh, I'm always encouraged by, in the context of while we're, while we're continuing to push back on uh, and put new limits on the use of technologies by police, I'm also encouraged by the ways in which organizers and activists and researchers and data yeah. scientists have been able to essentially hack that mm -hmm. by using the same technologies in ways to hold the police accountable. So, you know, for example, uh, CopWatch in some cities is able to use data on police violence and arrests to figure out which street corners to go to to film the police, where they're most likely to then uh, use force. Um, we've seen predictive policing is another huge problem where they use all of this data that's often faulty data or racially biased data uh, to decide where to send officers uh, that are often black and brown, in black and brown communities. Well, the Invisible Institute is now using that same data, except they're using, they're using the data on um, police use of force uh, to be able to predict which officers will be most likely to shoot somebody. Uh, and then being able to craft interventions that can hold those officers accountable before that happens. Um, and then the final thing that I just learned uh, this past week uh, in Ohio was that drone, the same company that did the drones uh, over Baltimore, uh, was doing drones over Dayton, Ohio. And researchers have been getting access to, they, they got access to the data Uh, those high-resolution images all over the city. And they've started to actually track the license plates of the cop cars. <laughs> so they were able to show that the cops were actually going disproportionately to black and brown communities mm. using the same data set that was being used That's against great. those communities. That's great. So, so there are ways in which cre uh, creative activists and data scientists, while we're trying to to prevent this data from continuing to be collected, uh, can use it to hold the police accountable in that, in that interim period. I think that that's really a really important part of the work as well. Yeah, yeah. Boom, 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 boom. Before we go to the interview, Sam, can you tell them about um, the study with body cameras and uh, aggression in audio? Yes, that's another way uh, that, the that you can use new data. So body cameras often problematic in many ways. Uh, however, Stanford researchers recently uh, obtained uh, a huge trove of video evidence from body cameras. And what they were able to, I think this was in Oakland, Oakland police cameras. Uh, and what they were able to show was in reviewing that, that those videos, uh, they could show that police were using a more aggressive tone when interacting with black people uh, compared to interacting with white people. Hmm. So the, this... Uh, vast repository of video evidence made it possible to conduct a study uh, to, sh to provide new insight into different forms of police violence that you know, we, we knew were happening but could provide sort of evidence into the, the scope and scale uh, that that was happening uh, that often precipitates you know, use of escalations that can uh, turn into uh, deadly force being used. 
the, other, the other thing that's also interesting with regard to uh, this new evidence that's being made available uh, is that Oakland, Oakland's police auditor, so this is the uh, institution that was created to hold the police accountable in Oakland, also got access to those body camera videos. And what they could show was that police weren't reporting when they were using force. So, you know, you'll, you'll see with Oakland, there's a lot of uh, the city, city officials and the police chief have been going around saying, you know, look at our use of force numbers. Uh, they've gone down dramatically. Like, we're doing the right thing. Um, of course, the Department of Justice is monitoring that, so, they, so it, it's to their advantage to say a lot of that. Um, and what they were able to show with this video is that, in fact, officers just weren't reporting force. Mm. Uh, and in particular, they weren't reporting when, they, when officers were pointing a firearm at people. Um, and that, was, that is the largest reportable force category in Oakland uh, and the one that had such significant reductions. And it turns out that's because officers just weren't reporting when they were doing it. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love made-in cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust made-in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use made-in cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com/offer/siriusxm. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? 
Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com people. So, Jay uh, Durkin, so I'm excited to be here. I have a lot to talk about. Um, when we think about Seattle, for some people, it's like a place where tech has come in, all these big companies have come in and changed the fabric of what community could look like. What is your take on that and what can we do about that? Great observation. So Seattle has always been that place that has been kind of a gold rush town, you know, from early days. But we have seen such extraordinary change in the city in the last four and five years. Over 100,000 people have moved here. And it's gotten to the point where Seattle is almost not affordable for anyone. Um, Right? (laughs) They're like, almost. It's not affordable. It's not affordable. And we've had this enormous, we talk about the boom and it's real. You know, we've got this prosperity of new jobs and technology. It's taking off like this, but it is leaving so many people behind. Um, And we are losing communities of color have been pushed out through gentrification and displacement. Our middle class can't live here anymore. Our teachers, our nurses, people are fighting for toehold. So what do we do? So we have to do a a whole bunch of things. Number one is we've got to find ways to have more affordable housing as quickly as we can get it. I mean, that's the first thing. So we've got to do that. And not just affordable housing that's deeply affordable for for people who are in the service industry, but also affordable housing for teachers, nurses, middle income, because it just doesn't exist. We also have to make sure that as, as the tech economy is taking off and the old economy or the service economy is here, that we have ladders, if not escalators, to that so everyone shares in the prosperity. Um, and that's at all levels. And one of the things I'm super proud that Seattle did is, you know, we had candidates who ran on the, on the whole ticket of let's give free college. Well, this year, Seattle voted that they will give two years free college to every public school high school student in Seattle. There we go. Is there, is there a plan around affordable housing that we can direct people to? There's a whole range of plans. Our, we have, we're in some ways fortunate because we have a housing levy. And so in the past two years, I've announced uh, funding for housing, and this is affordable housing, that will be about three quarters of over $700 million in housing to be built in the next five years. But it's not close to enough. So we are trying to bring private industry to the table. We're trying to get modular housing, um, backyard cottages, Everything we backyard can do. cottages. Backyard cottages. What's a backyard? Is that really like a cottage in the backyard? Well, it is. Okay. And except for in some neighborhoods where the backyard cottage is bigger than the house that was there to begin with. Um, but I've never heard of backyard. Yeah. Cottages so the before. whole concept is, you know, we've got a lot of land tied up in single-family zoning, and um, if we let those people build a small cottage in their backyard, then you could have, and they had a mother-in-law apartment. 
you could suddenly have three places to live on one lot. Okay. And it'd be great. Backyard cottages. I got to do more homework on backyard cottages. Now, there are a lot of thriving communities of color here, uh, one of the most active Native communities in the country and a thriving activist community. How do you make sure that you're responding to people who might not agree with you on positions? So first, you got to listen. Um, and it's, it's uh, to make sure that people have a voice and that you're out there listening, but also to... We had an upside-down system, I think. When I came in as mayor, we had shifted to a system where city government was top-down. Here, community, we know what's good for you. That doesn't work. So what you have to do is actually empower community to solve its own problems. And to say, we don't just listen to community, we're going to get good community-based organizations and get money to those organizations so they can identify and solve the problems in their own communities and create the opportunities. And I think it's, it's going to be a change. It takes some time. But we have some of the greatest grassroots organizations in the city of Seattle. I want to talk about the marijuana charges that uh, were vacated going back 30 years. Was anybody fighting you on that? No, interestingly not. I mean, there was backlash from some people, but it was such the right thing to do. The state is now following suit, and I think the whole country should. Um, Do you think that this might lead to more decriminalization? Yes. You know, Washington State and Colorado are the first to legalize marijuana, Um, and I think that looking at that, if we can have a harm reduction model... Can you explain that for people that don't know what harm reduction is? Harm reduction is you don't treat something that is a health issue or personal choice issue as a criminal justice issue. Are there any harm reduction strategies that you are more attuned, like that you like more than others? You know, I think we have to learn from what other cities, states, but other countries do too. And Europe is well ahead of America on this. Um, And they look at a range of things, not just drugs, but... um, all sorts of things saying, how do we say we address what people are that's a human-centered, real, you know, person-based response rather than you're outside the norm and so we're going to lock you up. Got it. So let's talk about the police. Let's talk about the police. And me, Brittany, and Sam spend most of our time on issues of policing. Um, and I first came across a Seattle in terms of policing because we did this big project in 2015 on police union contracts. So we created the first database and biggest database of police union contracts in the country. And you hired Carmen Best as your police chief and passed a new police union contract recently that some people uh, in communities were not very excited about. I know that it passed the city council 8-1, right? It was 8-1? Yep. Um, but a lot of people were frustrated with the contract. So I'll start there. Can you talk about that process in terms of like making sense of it for people who, who felt like the contract that was passed was a rollback of some accountability measures, and then let's talk about, we'll go, we'll go into some more things. Yeah, so I think it's really important to kind of back the camera up a little bit and do framework. Back it up. So first, you know, we in Seattle now are many years into our consent decree. Um, and ironically, I was U.S. attorney at the time working in the Department of Justice and was at that time um, opposed by the mayor of Seattle at that time to get the consent decree because as U.S. attorney, we saw incident after incident of, Uh, use of force, usually against men of color. And it was clear there was a pattern in practice. So we got the consent decree in place. And we can talk a little bit later if you ask questions about it. But we've seen now, it was 
the sea change in terms of using de-escalation instead of raising up, you know, the situation. And we've now seen that with the last report, the use of force by Seattle police officers has dropped significantly, particularly in those areas where there's crisis involved, where people are under the influence of alcohol and drugs or mental health or any other crisis. So during that period of time, since 2014, our police have been working with no contract. So they have been doing everything that, this, that the judge required them, that the consent decree required them. A lot of them left. We got new blood in. Um, and it's working, and it's saving lives. Um, but they've been working without a contract. At the same time, the city council passed additional reforms on top of what the consent decree required. So when we sat at the table, the number one thing that was important to me was we were not going to roll back reforms. And we were not going to do anything to undermine that consent decree. Now, there were some things in the ordinance that was passed that were above and beyond that. But there was language in the ordinance that says, these don't go into play until after you've bargained with the police. Because as you know, if they're a labor union agreement, you have an obligation under the law to sit at the table and bargain in good faith. You can't just dictate, you got to do X. So we sat at the table and we bargained and made sure that I think we got the things that were most important. And this contract only goes for about another year and then we're back at the table again. So for example, body-worn video cameras. It was clear and determined that that was something we had to bargain for. We couldn't just force them to do it. And it was really important for, I think, accountability in the community that that continue. They had filed a complaint against the city they agreed to that. We have a new auditor in place. It's going to get full and unfettered access to everything in the police department. So there's a number of reforms in place. There were some reforms under the ordinance that weren't exactly the same, but I really believe that we got the most critical ones and we will continue to move the dial. So when you go to the negotiating table in 2020, want to look at some clauses in you know, I know you have to negotiate and I used to be the chief of human capital in the school system in Baltimore. So I get negotiations. So I know there's some things that you can't say, like you're definitely going to take out because you don't have the power to do that. So we did an analysis of the hundred biggest cities in the country, their contracts. Seattle is one of two cities. It's only Seattle and Portland that have a clause that reads this. It's 3.12 in the Bill of Rights. If the city has reason to discipline an officer, the discipline shall be administered in a manner not intended to embarrass the officer before other officers or the public. It is the, it's one of two cities that has this like weird embarrassment clause. It says that officers have to be disciplined in the least embarrassing way. And what's interesting in Portland right now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, in Portland, the mayor, the police chief, and two commissioners in the city council are actually being grieved because they said something the police did was wrong. They said it publicly, and they are invoking this clause to have a chilling effect on city leadership. Would this be a clause that you'd be willing to look at uh, in 2020? Absolutely. Okay. Um, there is another clause that says that during interviews, uh, officers get reasonable intermissions for personal necessities, meals, telephone calls, and rest periods. These are things that when private citizens are interviewed or interrogated, they do not get. Uh, would you be willing to look at that in 2020? I think so, but I think that's one where I say I want to look at the totality of rights. I was a criminal offense lawyer. I'd actually like to go to the reverse sometimes to say, what do we make sure that all questioning by police of citizens is done more fairly? Yes. Okay. That would be great, too. Um, 
And maybe your answer to this next one is also that it, it says in this one that uh, during the interviews, police officers cannot be subject to offensive language. Would you be willing to extend that to uh, private citizens too? Yeah, let's, let's make that list of what's offensive. Yeah. Um, and the very last one, I'm this putting... This is G-rated, right? I'm, pu- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. Um, is that it also has a clause, F2, about that there's a five-day delay before officers can be interviewed, so they have to get at least five days' notice. Uh, what's interesting about this, so I'll give you some time to think about it and tell you the history of it. In most places, it's 48 hours. And the 48-hour... Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the 48-hour rule, so officers get 48 hours before they can be interviewed. So in a lot of cities, it's 48 hours here. It looks like it's five days in the contract. Um, is we were trying to figure out like where this came from. We were like, why is this rule in, or this contractual language in cities across the country? And what we found is that there's this one place called the Force Science Institute. It's a think tank funded by the police. Uh, and what their researcher has concluded is that the police, unlike any other uh, citizen and any other public servant, that their memory gets better over time. <laughs> And that the more time they have to let the adrenaline decrease in their system, the better their memory gets. And we think that that is one of the wildest pieces of science that we've ever seen. Uh, But it is, it literally is the only justification for this rule in cities across America. So you are not alone, or Seattle's not alone. It is in a lot of cities. Would love for you to say that you will at least look at that for 2020. I would look at it, but let me say why I would absolutely The good news is, is that with body-worn video, you don't really need the memory of officers as much as you did before. You know, I think that has been, you know, and I will admit I had mixed views about body-worn video just because I've seen the circumstances on the other side that when officers walk into a house that's domestic violence and the like, and, and you constantly have the cameras and we have public records, that all that becomes public. But it is clear now that you know, when you hear an incident being recounted by someone and then you watch the video, it's two different incidents. And so I think that a real advantage to what we will see, I think, is with more body-worn video and with dash cams, and now with everybody in the world has a camera on their phone, that we're starting to make some of those things less important. So I think it will be easier to get them to say, you know what, that's not as important to us, and admit that perhaps we should fight about something else. Okay, there we go. Got it. Um, Are you supporting anybody in 2020? And if not, what are you looking for in a candidate? Number one, someone who will beat Donald Trump. Okay. I mean, that is, and I I wish it were going to be easy, but I'm afraid it's not. Um, so that, and then I, I think we just have to, I think it's a little early. I think there's pros and cons of all of them. I think that there's 20 political lifetimes between now and then. What's and, important to you as a mayor? Like, what do you, what do you need the next president to, to do or be like? I need someone who will actually treat people with respect and have a country that stands for, you know, when we say that we're a country stands for justice and opportunity and welcoming, that they'll do that. And cities, when we try to do that, won't be sued and try to stop. You know, that we can actually, you know, we, we have immigrant and refugee com- communities that, you know, we have pressure from the federal government to say, give us information about people's status or where they are. We don't need that. We need support. We need you to fund mental health. We need you to fund treatment for the opioid crisis. And we need you to reform the criminal justice system. Um, and then we need you to get out of the way. <laughs> Have you had any fights with ICE? 
We had, we, I established an executive order early on when it turned that some of the federal authorities had tried to seek access to physical locations in the city of Seattle that I said no. Um, and so any requests that they have have to come to my council. Um, and if there is a legitimate law enforcement concern that doesn't relate to immigration status, we can talk about it. Interesting. I will say one thing that I know I'm going to get some booze here. So I will say... That was say, a good setup. <laughs> that was set up. It's like, be disappointed, everybody. Here we be go. Be disappointed. Okay, so I heard you talk about Beto, who announced. Okay. There's parts of him I love. And I do want to say, Beto, it's your moment. But it's your moment to support a person of color or a woman. What do you... So, you know, I didn't prepare to ask you about the candidates, but since you're talking about individual candidates, what about Howard? You opened the door. You did this. I gave you, like, a, just tell me about 2020, and you brought up Beto, so... I need someone who's going to beat Bunnell Trump. And I, I, you know, the math is there. I don't think an independent candidate can do it. So does that mean you don't think Bernie can do it? You said you didn't think an independent. You opened this door talking about individual people. I did not do this to you. I would think it'd be very interesting if Bernie ran as a socialist instead of a Democrat. Um, but he's running as a Democrat, and I think, you know, if you, I don't know what the polling shows, but um, I personally am not a Sanders supporter. Um, <laughs> for a lot of reasons, but there's a lot of energy. But I think we, look, I also think we have got to have a candidate who can capture the future and has to give youth some hope that they matter and that they can change the world. Um, and that's the part to me that seems to be missing. Um, last three questions. One is back to the police. I gave you a little break from the police, right. but we back. Uh, so this is about arbitration. So yep. during the negotiations, uh, it appears that in the ordinance, there was uh, the arbitration process got replaced by a process where the police chief would be the final say, and then it would go through a different appeals process, not through arbitration. Then during the contract, arbitration was put back in. What we know uh, from the research that is out there is that uh, arbitration disproportionately leads to uh, people winning on appeal in a lot of cities across the country. In Seattle, it was about 20% of the cases from 2007 to 2016 uh, were overturned at arbitration. So there was this question of like, why if the ordinance got rid of arbitration to make it more of a process where the appeals uh, went to people who were either elected or appointed, there was some sort of community oversight part of that. Why then would the contractual process t roll those back seemingly and replace it with the process that was closed again? So it actually didn't. And this okay. is really great that you did it because everything in, you know, you be in thing long enough, they go in cycles. The ordinance wanted this particular body to the, the appeals to move to them or the process to move to them. And not arbitrators. And not, well, they're a different kind of arbitrators. Okay. The PSRC. And we've had them before. And in the prior times, depending on how they're chosen, when we had that system before, they actually overturned more than the arbitrator system has. And then there's a system called, there's three different systems, it's a little confusing, but the one that's the worst, we eliminated. Okay. The one that just led to the reinstatement of an officer that we're challenging in court because he was fired, he should have been fired, he should Shepherd. stay out of the police department, in my opinion. 
um, we're appealing that. We eliminated the DRB. Really important to me sitting at the table that that system be gone. Okay. And then it was choosing between these two other systems. I had familiarity with the other system based on things I had done in prior lives when I was on oversight committees for the police department and knew that that system before had led to more appeals, more disciplines being reversed. Look, you can't have a system that has zero because due process means that sometimes mistakes are going to get overruled. And so I don't think you want a process that has zero. What you want is a process that's number one, transparent. So people know what happens. Mm -hmm. Number two is fair. And number three is there's some accountability built around it so that you can't just in the dark of the night, bad police officers or any bad employee in a system can have be their discipline overturned and they're back doing their job. And so what we'll continue to look at is to make sure is in this system that we bargained is very vigilantly look at that. But more importantly, we've now got an inspector general who gets to look at all of that and is going to look at trends to make sure that this is not calcifying or building in a worse system. Because if it is, we'll change it. I don't believe it will. I think it's better than the old system. Um, There's no system that's perfect, and we've got to continually look at it to see how we get the best system possible. But public's got to have confidence. That's the number one thing. Got it. And last few questions. Is there a lot of people who are losing hope in this moment? They have voted. They've protested. They've gone to all the events. They've called people. They've done all the things they were told to do. And they feel like the world's not changing in a way that they wanted it to. What do you say to those people? Don't lose hope. Because that's what they want to happen. I mean, that's the bottom line is, you know, the people that every day that are are, are perpetuating a system that is hateful or that is targeted to immigrants and refugees or a president who spouts, you know, racist activity, they want you to lose hope and opt out because then they win. And, you know, there is no straight line and you look at all of the best activists over the history of the world and the ones that pushed and kept pushing even when it was hard. That's when change happens. And last question that we ask everybody on the pod is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Listen. My mom always would say, because I tended to like just act. And she'd say, stop and listen. Let's give it up for Mayor Jimmy Durkin. Thank you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Why pick one city, one beach, one restaurant, or even one view? With Celebrity Cruises, you can have it all. Explore the best of Europe, the Caribbean, and Alaska with the best premium cruise line. And now get 75% off your second guest, plus bonus savings on select dates with Celebrity Cruises' semi-annual sale. Visit Celebrity.com, call 1-800-CELEBRITY, or contact your travel advisor. Offer applies to non-refundable fares and select sailing. Savings vary by stateroom category. Other terms apply. Visit Celebrity.com for details. Ships Registry Malta. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.